Welcome to the Azure Podcast, a series of short discussions on various topics related to the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Your hosts, Kale Teeter and Sajit Mello, discuss a specific topic on each show to give you a high-level overview of that topic and resources to get more information should you wish to dig further. For more information about our show, please see our website at azpodcast.azurewebsites.net. All right. Uh, welcome back to the podcast. can't believe we're at episode number two. We made it. My name is Sajit Mello. I am a consultant with Microsoft, focused on the application development space. And these days, that typically means, uh, you know, cloud uh, programming and cloud computing. On the Skype, uh, I have my esteemed colleague, Kale. Kale? Uh, hey, Sajid. Yeah, this good. Good to be around for the second episode. Uh, my name's Kale. Um, just like Sajid, I'm in MCS in the uh, Northeast region, and uh, focused on application development and a lot of Azure applications. So, Kale, I thought this episode we would get into details of the PaaS model, but why don't we remind our listeners what we discussed last time regarding PaaS? Sure. Uh, thanks for that, Sajid. Um, yeah, PaaS is one of my favorite services we offer in, in Windows Azure. We have a whole suite of services, as we mentioned last time, and, and this is one of my favorite because it's very unique in the industry. Um, um, and just to get through, it, it is our flagship offering. Um, so it's And when I say it's a flagship offering, it's the, the service that's going to provide you the most value for the buck. Um, and the primary reason is because you get out of the business of managing all this glue and the infrastructure behind your application, and you can focus solely on your code. Yeah. Um, so a lot of things that come along with that. So patches and security updates. Uh, you know, being maintaining all this infrastructure and servers, and not just uh, Windows servers. We're talking about infrastructure such as firewalls, and load balancers, and all the type of components that it takes to run a large-scale application. Um, I, know, I know years ago, let's say 10 years ago, when we were setting up large-scale websites, load balancing alone, they have their own operating system, these hardware load balancers from F5 and Foundry and such. And, and it's a nightmare, you know, to kind of keep on pace with all of these different updates because we have the Microsoft side and we also have the network side. Um, we're also going to get things like failover automatically. Um, so we don't have to maintain um, a lot of code up there to figure out, like, when what when things go wrong or if uh, a node happens to fail, because that will happen. There's no guarantee that servers run 24-7 forever. They do fail, yep. and that's why we have automated failovers. Um, and some of the things like provisioning. So provisioning an application, um, as you know, at most companies, you know, years ago when we were running applications before we had this infrastructure, uh, provisioning took an army of guys, you know, to do it, and now... We can zip up our code and our configuration and publish it. And it's, it's very seamless, works really well. Um, and then we get things like automated logging and things that allow auto-scaling. We'll talk about those in some other the deeper podcasts. Um, and, and some of the disadvantages. I mean, it's not, not everything's for free. We do have some disadvantages. Um, it often requires a little bit of code work to actually move your application to PES. Um, so it's not something where I could just like forklift my application and bring it over there. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the big tenants, and we mentioned this last time too, it's it's a key for scalability is is statelessness. Um, that that's been a tenant with you know 
the HTTP protocol for years. Um, and we built all these sophisticated ways to make it seem like our application was stateless, but when it actually was stateful. So it's, it's really key to focus on making things stateless so that they can be spread across a, a variety of servers. Um, we mentioned stuff about trust last time. So there is, uh, you know, if you're into the, uh, our code security model, um, you know, we have things that run in medium trust. We can actually do full trust now, but it does require uh, some config changes. Um, and then things like custom code, if you have third-party assemblies or DOLs um, from a vendor, um, it does require a little bit of work to integrate those. They don't necessarily work directly out of the box because when we our machine up there is going to require those to be installed. So we have to go through things like startup tests to do that. And, um, and, and in general, it's going to require a little bit more discipline around your your ALM or your application lifecycle life management. And what that means is, you know, being disciplined about source code and how you publish your application. Maybe you start to talk about continuous integration and those types of things. But uh, in general, this these are the kind of things we look at with a pass type application. And uh, Sujit, uh, maybe you want to elaborate a little bit on the uh, some of the individual components that make up these the PaaS applications. Sure. That's a great intro into PaaS, uh, Kale. Thanks for that. Yeah, so the very basic uh, parts of PaaS are, of course, the web and the work, uh, the web roles and the worker roles. Uh, web roles are, as you can imagine, just typical websites that you would build. It could be MVC websites or uh, just an ASP.NET website. And a worker role is something that is running all the time. It, you can think of it as a Windows service. Uh, if you, if for those folks who have done uh, programming before uh, in in the uh, .NET space, so if you if you need a long running uh, program that is doing work periodically, you would create a worker role. But if you need a web uh, a website to service requests from the users, you would create a web role. There is also a, a, a WCF role, a service role, where you can create a web service as opposed to a web website. And your web service might, uh, you know, do something interesting with the information that you have and uh, return or accept some information from the other application that's calling your web service. Whenever you have to start creating these uh, services, there are three basic configuration files involved. The first one is your service definition file. That one kind of defines your service model. You know, what kind of roles you have, how many worker roles, how many web roles, how many WCF services, etc. The second file is the cloud service configuration file. This gives you the individual settings for each of those roles that you have configured. And the third one is the service package, which contains the actual source code. When you build your source code on your machine in Visual Studio, it gets packaged up and sent up to the cloud, and that contains all your code. That's the service package. Now, you may be wondering, you know, how do you deploy apps in the cloud? For those of you who are used to de- deploying apps on your local uh, data centers uh, in your in your organization, it's a different process. You know, you go through, you hand it off to somebody else, and then they put it into, uh, an engineer might install it somewhere, and then it might go to another environment, and so on and so forth. It seems to happen almost automatically. With the cloud, you get to control all that. Okay. There are two um, deploy- deployment environments in the cloud. The first one is your staging environment. Typically, when you have finished development and you push it up to the cloud, it goes into staging. Now, the staging is 
very similar to your production environment, which is the other environment that you have in the cloud. The only difference is that both of them have different URLs uh, used to access them. The production environment typically has a nice, you know, fancy-looking URL, like a vanity URL, and the staging environment uh, typically has some sort of a GUID. Uh, it's a very um, it's a unique uh, um, URL for that particular uh, endpoint, but that only you know, because the staging environment is just meant so that you can test it. It's not meant for outsiders to really use. It's meant so that you can validate that the code is working. And and then when you know it's working, it's an interesting thing that you do. You swap the deployments. So when you're ready to push this into production, you swap uh, the staging and the production environments. And that almost that swap happens almost instantaneously and almost immediately you have all your 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 code that you had just finished developing and tested is now in production and then the what used to be in production now becomes the staging and now you can use that for the next release that you have out there uh, if once a service is running, if you need to go out and configure it, you can just walk up to the Azure portal, and it's an extremely nice website. It lets you configure and tune all the various settings that are in your service. You can also monitor things that are going on in there, what your bandwidth usage, your CPU usage, uh, look at diagnostic logs, and so on and so forth. And developing a new service, uh, Kale, is uh, surprisingly easy, as you know. Just fire up Visual Studio with the Azure tools to file a new project, cloud project. You select cloud project from the templates and add as many roles as you need. As I said, you can have more than one WCF uh, web or worker role. There's a couple of other roles that you'll see in there, which we'll cover in later uh, episodes. Uh, but essentially, it's what you do. You just build a normal, uh, you know, yeah, ESP.NET or WCF or C-Sharp uh, uh, app, uh, and once you're done with it, you just push it up to the cloud. It's really easy. So, uh, Kale, the other, uh, of course, no uh, service is complete without some sort of storage, right? And we're not allowed to write to the hard disk in in the cloud. So what can the developers do for storage? Yeah, definitely. Uh, storage is a big thing when we start talking about our apps. Um, as far as where are we going to put some of our static data or our dynamic data, we need to start thinking about uh, where we're going to lay these bits down. And uh, so we have a couple different ways to store things um, in Windows Azure. Um, and one of the first ones, the key ones, is, is blobs. And um, we mentioned this on a previous episode, but, but blobs are useful for storing unstructured data. Um, so just blobs of data, binary data. So we have basically two types of blobs that we can have in, in Windows Azure in our blob storage. Um, we have a page blob and a block blob. So they're a little bit different, and they have different usages. So the page blob, uh, if you can think about it, similar to something like SQL Server, where we have the notion of these um, pages of data. Uh, they happen to be 512 bytes of uh, pages, and they're great for read-write operations. So if we're doing a lot of really quick read-writes, um, the page blob actually works really good. It's it's actually the blob storage behind our, our VMs, our virtual machines in infrastructure as a service. Um, the reads are aligned to 512-byte boundaries. Um, you can write pages up to 4K, and the writes are immediate. Um, these are just some statistics about the page blobs and uh, just to give you a, a little bit of uh, background on what they are. The maximum size can be one terabyte for the uh, page blobs. Um, when we start looking at things like block blobs, they're a little bit different animal. So the block blobs um, can be blocks. So basically, if we had a, um, 
they can be a maximum size of 200 gigabytes. So inside that 200 gigabytes, we can cut that up into these what we call blocks. And they can be up to 4 megabyte in size. And this is useful because, as you can imagine, you can write just chunks of data up there. Um, it's great whenever you're doing seeks. So if you know exactly I need to replace at this boundary inside the uh, in the block, we can just go right to that area. Um, we don't have to be aligned to any boundaries or anything. We can just go up to a sector that we want to write to and do it. Um, the one thing that does have a limitation on it, you can't have more than 50,000 blocks inside of one blob. So we can have 200 gigabyte, 50,000 blocks inside of that. And uh, there's a required commit on those as well. So it's a little bit different from the page blob where the writes happen immediately. On the block blobs, it's more like a transaction. So we write some data, and then we have to commit it. And once we commit it, then the data is shown. So that's it's kind of an interesting storage thing for unstructured data. But if you're looking for structured data, Sajit, um, we have some other stuff. I think uh, you're going to talk a little bit about maybe the tables. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the blobs are good for for just binary objects, but when you want to store actual data in some form that you can retrieve easily, uh, using Azure tables is uh, probably the best way to go. And for uh, for those of you guys who have done some sort of development before, you've heard of the NoSQL. Uh, databases out there and Azure tables is you can think of it as a no SQL option and what that means is it's a flat table that does not have any query language built into it it's there's no relationship between the data that's stored in an Azure table you have to maintain the relationship inherently in your code uh, by using some sort of a key value now uh, the tables uh, can contain uh, any uh, any entity that you can make up, as long as it's less than one megabyte in size. And uh, entities uh, can have a set of pr- properties. Uh, you can have up to 252 properties uh, in an entity. So the way to look, think about it is that an entity is like a row, and the, and the properties are like the columns uh, that you would have uh, in a typical uh, SQL database table. And what this does is it actually uh, automatically can scale up to support uh, tables up to size 200 terabytes, which is an astounding number. Take some time to understand how you uh, you set up the keys for the tables. There's just there's basically two keys involved in every uh, record that you put into the Azure tables. The first is the partition key, and the second is the row key. So the partition key is, uh, you know, you have to figure out what that is going to be uh, because Azure will use the partition key to make sure that all information relative to one partition is kept together. And then the row key, uh, you know, further uh, defines what the uh, uh, the data in the particular row is. So uh, you have to be careful to design your partition key and your row key properly to get the proper uh, scaling that you desire. And uh, there's no schema in these uh, tables. And uh, the nice thing is that every entry can be accessed via the net, via the internet, using a standard REST style notation. So you can put any information out there, and somebody who has the right credentials can access it very easily, without using anything, uh, any fancy API or anything like that. And uh, and and Kale, I, you know, my favorite, of course, is 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 another form of uh, communication that we have in Azure, uh, and I believe you're going to cover that. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, so the last form of thing that we want to talk about here with storage is uh is the queues. 
So we have the, the notion of a thing called an Azure queue uh, in our storage uh, mechanisms in Azure. Um, I want to make one thing clear. Um, we're talking about Azure queues here. We also have things called service bus queues, which we'll talk about in a later episode. Um, but these are specifically the Azure storage queue that work with our, our storage mechanism. So um, to describe them a little bit, they're great for um, – if you can think a little bit about like how we used to do things with messages, uh, message queue was one of the big products we had. And I, I when you start working with this, you're going to see a lot of similarities um, to what we had there. Um, so the messages are small, similar to what we had in MSMQ. So the messages – when your messages are less than or equal to maybe 600 or 64 kilobytes um, – this is this is ideal for using this type of storage mechanism. Um, the total capacity is 200 terabytes uh, maximum that you can have in flight in these queues. Um, they're a persistent, dedicated messaging service, um, useful for large message volumes. Again, small size messages, but large volumes. Um, it's useful for tracking messages. Uh, we can track the message status inside the message. So similar to what we did in MSMQ, we can actually reach into the queue and um, grab a message and talk to it, and that status actually gets updated in there. Um, another key benefit of it is the server side uh, is keeping logs about what's going on, so it's more of a centralized model um, for keeping track of what's going on with your, your messages that are in your queue. And again, just like uh, Sajid mentioned with the tables, um, this this entire set of uh, storage mechanism inside of the Azure queues can be accessed via the REST style notation. Um, so it's a great mechanism if you're looking for something to uh, do some message type queuing. Yep. And uh, I know we have a couple other tools that we can work with storage and uh, Sajid. I think yes. Talk with them. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the things that listeners may be thinking is, okay, I have all these uh, great uh, uh, you know, storage options in Azure. How do I, uh, you know, manage them? How do I, how do I upload, download, look and see what's going on in, in each of these storage options? And, uh, yes, you could, there are command line tools that are available, but you don't have to use a command line tool. There is a very nice tool that I recommend everybody goes out and gets right away. It's called the Average Azure Storage Explorer. It's a free tool on Coplex, and we're going to put a link to that in the uh, show notes. And it's a, a very nice uh, GUI-based tool that lets you upload, download uh, data into the blobs, into the tables, uh, look at look at the queue, even put, add new items to the queue, etc. So it's a great uh, learning tool uh, to see how uh, this, all the various storage options are organized, and you can also use it to manage your data. Now, uh, Kale, you know, I know you've done a bit of uh, a few Azure projects with some of your customers. What are some of the common questions, issues that people should think about, you know, uh, or might ask when it comes to using paths. Yeah, thanks, Ajit. Um, yeah, a couple common things that come up, especially when we're talking about specifically about paths, is um, one of the first things is, well, great, I can deploy this application up to this um, to this application up to this platform as a service, but can it access other services inside Windows Azure? For instance, if I had a SQL database running in infrastructure as a service, can my PaaS talk to that? Is that possible? Um, can it talk to Service Bus? Can it talk to some of these other services that are up there in Azure? And the answer is yes. Um, so we have a virtual networking service um, as part of our platform. And what happens there is we basically, in our service configuration, we're able to define um, our network. And specifically, when we're deploying our PaaS application, we define how it fits into that network. Um, so once we set our virtual network up, we just integrate this as part of that network if we so choose to. 
Um, there's no charge for data transfer that happens inside the physical data center. So that's another great benefit of that. Um, and one of the other things people ask is, well, great, I can put my web application up there, but maybe I'm not totally comfortable putting my data up there. Maybe I want to keep my SQL Server or my database or my data repository local. Is that possible? Can I do that? And it is possible, but we always caveat this because you really need to think about the design and what your loads are, how your caching mechanism works, all these types of things. Because if there's any latency between the Azure data center and your data center where you're housing your data, um, then you could experience delays and those types of things. So it's great to put a cache layer in the middle if you're going to do something like that. Um, again, that works with our virtual network service. Um, so we have a couple different ways to do it. We can, and we'll talk about, again, I keep alluding to the, uh, later podcasts, but we're going to talk about service bus and we're also going to talk about our VPN. And those two things will allow us to enable to do stuff like that. Um, one of the other things to think about is the migration of the applications. I mentioned earlier that it's kind of one of the disadvantages maybe some people think about because they have to actually do some work to move their application up there. And um, really, like I said before, there is a little bit of work. Um, we, you don't have to change your core code. If you wrote a ASP.NET or an NBC application, it's going to run up there in general. It's the stuff around it that we're talking about. It's talking to your database. It's all these different things uh, around it that you'll have to tweak slightly because you're in this infrastructure that's slightly different. So it takes a little bit of time to cloud-enable all your applications, and that's why we have the notion of a hybrid cloud. So you hear that term thrown around a lot. And what that actually means is maybe some of your stuff still stays on-premise. I mentioned maybe your database or something like that stays on-premise, maybe some of your web services. Um, And maybe you move your front end up there. Um, So we have we can enable this model where you can function in that mode where you have some in the cloud and some on-premise. And uh, so that, that's a great model, and people, I think, are moving towards that a lot. And, uh, that's, uh, again, PaaS is primarily targeted at websites and also services. Sajit mentioned the uh, worker roles, but, yeah. Sajit? That's great. Uh, yeah. So uh, we're coming to the end of the show, but wanted to make sure that we uh, gave the listeners some updates. There were a fair amount of updates this week. Uh, regarding to Windows Azure. We're going to try and keep you guys up to date with all the latest uh, changes uh, to the service. Uh, as you know, uh, .NET 4.5 uh, was RTM this past week, as was uh, Windows Server 2012 R2. And uh, to um, to support that, uh, now all virtual machines in the cloud in Azure support the, the, the latest OS, the cloud services, all the PaaS services that we talked about. Now they all run on these latest OS and latest version of .NET. So, uh, and also the uh, Windows Azure pack, which is uh, a very nice facility. We'll talk about that uh, in in an upcoming episode. It lets you run Azure sort of light in your own data center, and that also supports Windows Server 2012 R2 now. And uh, the best uh, news of all is we've announced a round of price cuts up to 22% in in some of the uh, various uh, workloads that we have. yeah, there are A5, A6, A7 VMs. These are some of the more memory-intensive VMs that we have, which uh, which are now a lot cheaper. The other thing uh, that uh, is uh, came out now is uh, something about trims for 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 blobs. If you if a VM uses a blob to store a large bit of data and then deletes the data, 
they would uh, typically have to do a trim after that because they don't want to incur the cost of you know using all that unused space. And now you don't have to do that. If you delete the file, you know, Azure will do the trim for you automatically. So that's a nice feature just to save you money. And finally, uh, the Windows Azure SDK 2.2 is out. Suppose Visual Studio 2013, which also came out this past week. So I encourage everybody to get it. That's got a ton of uh, great things. The integration into VS 2013 is really nice. Uh, you're going to like what you see over there. Uh, there's also uh, the uh, the Systems uh, Center Operations Manager Management Pack for Azure now available. So if you use COM in your data center and you want to use it to to manage the cloud as well, uh, that's something that you want to look for. And finally, we talked about a whole bunch of uh, services today, and uh, so those services, you know, everything is you you pay for you, for what you use. And sometimes, you know, there's always this uncertainty about what uh, what it's going to all cost me. So uh, there's a pricing calculator in Azure, and I'm going to put that up uh uh, in the, the link to that in the show notes, but that'll give you an idea as to what you can expect your bill to be just by inputting certain uh, criteria into that calculator. So we'll put a note up there, uh, a link up there in the show notes, so that uh, you know you have some rough idea on the cost. It's not a whole lot of cost, but you know you you, you should know what it's going to cost you. And uh, I think that's it. Uh, I think that was a uh, that's the end of our show. Uh, so Kale, thanks again for all your insights. And uh, thanks again for listening. Uh, keep uh, If you guys have any feedback, please use the website to, to drop us a note. And we'll try and keep all these uh, all the latest uh, updates in Azure and each of these uh, specific items in Azure coming in future episodes. So thank you very much. Kale, thanks uh, for having you uh, on the phone. Yeah, thanks a lot, Sujit. It was a good time. Thanks. All right. Take care then, guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to the show. If you have any comments or questions, please use the comments section of the website at easypodcast.azurewebsites.net. Background music has been taken from ccmixer.org under Creative Commons license. Thank you, and see you next time. So, Kale, I thought this episode we would get into details of the PaaS model, but why don't we remind our listeners what we discussed last time regarding PaaS?